Hi, and welcome back to Feed the Q. I'm Adela Mizrachi. I am the founder of Podcast Brunch Club, which is like book club, but for listeners. And I'm Lauren Passell, and I have two podcast newsletters, Podcast the Newsletter and Podcast Marketing Magic. And I also founded a podcast marketing company called Tink. And you're listening to Feed the Q. And on every single episode of Feed the Q, Adela and I share an episode that we loved that we don't think enough people heard. So it's basically stuff from shows that should be trending on all the charts, but aren't. So these little gems that we're obsessed with, and we think you'll be obsessed with too. Today, we are featuring an episode from the Nocturnists podcast. The episode title is called The Lazarus Effect. And just a little bit about the Nocturnists to give you a little frame of reference. It was started by Emily Silverman, who is an internal medicine physician at University of California, San Francisco. And while she was doing her residency, she started to feel like really disillusioned and disconnected. And she was inspired by The Moth, which for those of you who don't know The Moth, it's a live storytelling show, also has a podcast. And she decided to start her own storytelling event at UCSF for healthcare providers. And it really took off. And she started a podcast around it. And if you're interested... I did a Q&A with Emily back in 2019, and it's on the Podcast Brunch Club website. I will link to that in the show notes. And I interviewed her for Podcast the Newsletter. <laughs> I did not know that you also interviewed her. We just both love her. And we'll share a link to that interview in the show notes as well. And also, doesn't that just sound like the American dream to you? Like the new American dream? You like start a little podcast and, you totally. know, because you're bored at work and then it ends up exploding. And yeah, I would just like to say I, I this episode that you're about to hear, it's, I think my favorite episode as well. You chose this, but it's, I think my favorite episode of The Nocturnists. It's sad, but also the way the storyteller tells it, you find yourself laughing. And it's also just makes you think about death. It's beautiful. And also, I this is not that important. No, it is important. The Nocturnists has the best artwork. Google it right mm -hmm. now. They have they beautiful artwork for every single episode. And exciting news, if you live in or near San Francisco, live storytelling for The Nocturnists is coming back. So they'll have a live storytelling event on June 10th. Right. We'll include a link to that in the show notes as well. And I just want to point out something about the format of the show. So what you're about to listen to, the format is kind of, I think, the way they started, which was all centered around their live storytelling events. So they would record the stories that were told live on stage and play it on the podcast. And then after that, Emily actually takes Storyteller to the studio and talks to them more about the backstory or digs a little deeper or finds out what's happening now because sometimes the stories are older and so you, you want to hear an update. So I love that kind of addition to the storytelling format. You hear the story and then you get to dig a little deeper. But I will say that they've done a couple of different formats in the recent past. So obviously when COVID hit, they couldn't do live storytelling events anymore and they did a couple of different formats. They did a lot of audio diaries. They did a whole series called Black Voices in Healthcare, right? Lauren, that was what it was called, Black Voices yeah. in Healthcare? And yeah. And it was nominated for a Webby in 2021. Yeah, it's excellent. It's so good. I just listened to an episode that where Emily Silverman did an interview with an author who wrote a whole book about dreams and dreaming. 
And so there's a variety of formats. So what I will say is that depending on what you like about the show, if you like the, the, you know, if you just love the healthcare side of it, you probably would like all of these. But if you like the storytelling side of it, the first few seasons are like really where they do the storytelling. And I'm assuming that they're going to start doing that more now that they're starting to have their live storytelling events. So I just wanted to point that out about the format. And also one more like very cool thing about them. They donated an audio library of like 700 clips for more than 200 frontline healthcare workers during the pandemic to the Library of Congress. So very impressive. We are not discovering this show and we're not the only ones who love it, but we we need more people to hear the nocturnists. And that's such a great archival piece to share with the Library of Congress. I mean, think about that. Like in 50 years, you know, you're going to actually hear the voices of people that were working on the front lines during COVID. That's like pretty amazing to have that kind of in the archives. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So before we drop the episode into your feed, I want to just give a quick thanks to Clever.fm for supporting us this season. If you don't know Clever, you should go check it out. It's a podcast app that is designed for the super listener. So they have got a lot of really awesome tools. So go check that out. And now here's the episode. At The Nocturnist, we are careful to ensure that all stories comply with healthcare privacy laws. Details may have been changed to ensure patient confidentiality. All views expressed are those of the person speaking and not their employer. From a distance, death looks absolute. A person is either dead or alive. But up close in the hospital, death isn't always that simple. Sometimes, the line between life and death can blur. I'm Emily Silverman, and this is The Nocturnist, stories from the world of medicine. We were really encouraged by the response to season one of our podcast. So after several months of hard work, we're so excited to finally be able to share a brand new set of stories with you. This season, we'll be transported from the emergency room to the inside of a prison to the plains of Montana and beyond. Whether you're a fellow doctor, a student, another health provider, or just someone interested in the nuances of medicine, we hope you'll find these narratives as meaningful as we do. We're also thrilled to announce our first storytelling contest. So if you're a student or a resident, consider submitting a story to us related to the theme of learning. If your story is selected, you'll receive a $500 cash prize and a slot on season three of the Nocturnist podcast. To learn more about the contest, visit our website at thenocturnists.com. In our first episode, emergency medicine physician Joe Sills describes a startling moment with a patient he's already pronounced dead. Later on, Joe and I talk about what it means to die, the scripted art of delivering bad news, and the challenge of being transparent with our patients. Here I give you... Joe Sills. When I was an intern, sometimes I'd be asked to go to a room and pronounce a patient dead. Later on, I realized that this was one of the least important jobs, which is why it was assigned to me. These were always patients who had been expected to die, and they didn't want to be resuscitated, and all that was really needed was a doctor's signature for the paperwork. But at the time, I was terrified of getting it wrong, that later in the morgue, the patient would unzip herself out of the body bag, and 
I would end up in the news. So I once listened with my stethoscope on this 100-year-old woman's chest for five entire minutes until the nurse finally came over and lifted up the diaphragm of my stethoscope and said into it, is this thing on? But since then, I've called the time of death for lots of patients that have died in my emergency department, uh, or at least enough to be unable to remember most of them. And that's because there is just a predictability and a repetition uh, about the work that I do and the people that I meet. The kid with asthma gets an inhaler. The guy with heart failure gets a diuretic. The patient in cardiac arrest gets chest compressions. And maybe she lives, but usually not. And after enough iterations of that, the texture of a specific experience flattens into the broad and regular patterns of shift work. And on your drive home, it can be hard to say exactly what it was that happened to your patients or to you. So when something happens that defies my expectations, I know that I'm probably going to remember it whether or not I want to, which brings me to Mark. On the day that I met Mark, the day that he was brought to my emergency department, he didn't look so good. His skin was gray and sweaty, and I could see that it was hard for him to breathe, but he made eye contact with me, which is enough for me to at least try and quickly introduce myself before going about the rapid work of keeping someone alive. Hello was about as far as I got when Mark's heart stopped. Mark's nurse started chest compressions, and I intubated Mark to try and help him breathe, and we went through the typical sequence of resuscitation until Mark's pulse came back. And then it was lost again, and then it came back and was lost again. And after a few more episodes of that, I searched for Mark's pulse and found nothing and used an ultrasound probe to view his heart up on a monitor where I could see its musculature had gone still. No one plans to die in an emergency department, but I've become used to giving that news to the families of those who have. By now, I was comfortable with it. Sometimes it bothered me how comfortable I could be. I once had an attending compare giving that news to tossing a subpoena through a door that's about to slam shut on your hand. But now I tend to think of it more as a refrain with three beats that must be sung correctly. I have terrible news. Pause. Your husband has died. And there's a lot more to it than just that, but that's the rhythmical core of it. It's the part that you must not stammer. And that's what I told Mark's wife, uh, Samantha, when she arrived. I led Samantha uh, down to Mark's room where he lay, and I pulled up a chair for her, and I stood beside her while she cried. And then I waited for a calm moment to excuse myself from the room. And while I was waiting, my attention wandered up to the clock, and I calculated the hours I had left in my shift and thought about what I might make for dinner at home when I got there. And that was around when Mark gently extended his neck 
as if reaching for the surface of a lake. What's that? Samantha asked me. And I explained to her that this is what's called an agonal movement, and it's a brainstem reflex of the dying process, and it's normal. And then I asked her how she and Mark had met. Now, I had never asked anything like that in a situation like this, and I wasn't really sure why I had. Maybe it was to help Samantha remember Mark differently from how he looked now, and maybe it was also to distract Samantha while I quietly reached my fingers down to Mark's wrist, where I now felt a weak and slow but undeniable pulse. <laughs> So I stood there with Mark's pulse flickering in my hand while Samantha told me that she had met Mark 15 years ago while at a park. And by that point in their lives, they were each in their 50s and had become used to the idea of being single. But three months later, they were at their own wedding. By now, Mark had been physically unwell for a long time. And Samantha said that she had begun to imagine the ways in which Mark might die. Maybe she would find him in bed one morning. Maybe they would be out on a walk together and he would have to take a break and catch his breath and just be unable to get back up. She hoped that by imagining his death, it would somehow make his actual one more bearable, as if she could pay off some of that grief in advance, rather than having to bear all of it in one lump sum. But now that it was here, it felt unreal, as if this were just another version of his death that she had thought up. And she looked up at me and asked, is that normal? Normally by now, I would have left the room now, I knew that there was nothing that I or anyone could do to save Mark's life, and I already felt his pulse becoming weaker in my hand, but I had never told the wife that her husband was not really dead. I had just never learned how to do something like that. And by now, I think Samantha must have noticed a dent in my composure, and she asked me, is something wrong? And without knowing if what I was saying was the right thing, I told her, that I feel a weak pulse, and it's getting weaker now, and I expect it to disappear soon. And she asked me, what do you think we should do? And I said, I think we should let Mark die. And she seemed relieved by that, and I felt more grateful for that reaction than I'd like to admit. Afterwards, uh, when I was able to excuse myself, I walked down the hallway into the bathroom and closed the door and locked it and stood there for a long time, or at least as long as the department would allow. There were already other patients waiting in other rooms and more tests for me to order, and I could hear another ambulance backing up into the entryway. And I worried about what I'd say next to Samantha, but by the time I had gotten caught up, she had already left for home, and eventually Mark's body was collected for the morgue. The thing about life is that one day you'll be dead. And that's as terrifying as it is forgettable. That contradiction is as much a part of working around death 
as it is just simply living. So on my better days, I'm mindful of the deta details and the people around me. And on that day, on my drive home, I reflected on none of that and <laughs> instead worried over all the other mistakes that I've ever made in my life. I have a really long commute and so I got as far back as preschool when I <laughs> tapped on the panels of the class ant farm and collapsed all of the diligently excavated tunnels. But by the time I'd gotten home and parked my car, my anxieties had mostly burned themselves out. And I thought about Samantha and that Mark had been a pretty lucky guy. And walking back up to my apartment where my wife waited, I felt lucky too. Thank you. I'm sitting here with Joe Sills. Uh, thank you, Joe, for coming to chat with me today. Yeah, th thank you for having me. I loved your story. I thought it was word for word, just beautiful. Thank you. And you had the audience laughing, you had the audience crying. And so I am excited to dive into the story a bit with you. Um, I'd love to know, because you've been practicing emergency medicine now for how long? Uh, I've been out of residency for a year and change. I okay. graduated in July of last year. I see. So you've so not long. So actually not as long as I thought, but long enough that I'm sure you've accumulated a lot of stories. And I'm just curious to hear why this story uh, in particular you chose to tell out of, you know, everything that you've experienced as an emergency room doctor. Well, this is one of the few patients that I've had that have come in alive and died during uh, during my care. It's not, not um, infrequent that a patient uh, dies in the emergency department, but you usually see it coming. But I can probably count on maybe two or three hands, like the amount of times that a patient has come in alive and ended up dying and maybe three times that a patient has actually died like mid-sentence like while they were while they were speaking to me. So I think that's why it has outshone those other memories of other patient encounters. It sounds like that transition point can be sometimes very slow for people, but in the emergency room sometimes can be very fast. As you say, it can happen mid-sentence. Can you tell us a little bit about what that's like to witness? Yeah. Well, I remember one gentleman came in with a pain in his armpit. I came in, my armpit's been hurting for a couple weeks. And uh, we did an EKG, uh, which looks at a patient's heart rhythm. And it looked a little funny to me. 
So we were repeating another EKG, and on the EKG machine, it's very sensitive to patients' movements. So I could see that it was kind of like jostling around. So I looked up again and said, sir, could, do you mind just staying still for a second while we, we finish this test? And he had gone uh, completely white, and his eyes had rolled back into his head. And I checked his pulse, and it wasn't there. He had gone to a VTAC, or a ventricular tachycardia, which is a life-threatening rhythm. And we shocked him. We put uh, defibrillator pads on him and gave him like electricity to restart his heart. Um, and I remember he just looked at me and said, hey, what happened? And I had to explain. He woke like, well, up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he's like, well, I'm really glad you came in for your armpit pain because I think you're having a heart attack. Wow. It seems different from a lot of the deaths that I've witnessed as a resident in the ICU where I feel like people languish on life support for days, you know, weeks, um, and we don't see a lot of that, a lot of that like instant, mm -hmm. um, perhaps as much as I think emergency room physicians see, or maybe I just haven't done enough time in the ICU. No, I think you're right. Yeah, I think that you do get thinner slices of those experiences in the emergency department. You um, see, because I will meet people that uh, have been through that, who've like, uh, been on the ward for a long time for a chronic illness or now on hospice and are, you know, are at the end of their life. Um, but they come into the emergency department for whatever reason because they can't manage their pain at home or or they have uh, some other deterioration that their family is worried about. So then you kind of have to extrapolate like the, the, what that patient's life was from just outside of the, the hour, like a couple hours that you were able to get to know them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I was thinking a lot about this, about just the way the body dies and all of the different ways that the body can die, especially when this article came out, I think in The New Yorker, about a a young woman who had a tonsillectomy gone yeah. bad. I don't mm -hmm. know if you read this article. Yeah. And underwent some sort of CPR, and her brain came out of it not quite alive and not quite dead, basically. Mm -hmm. And she ended up on life support, I think, in her mother's apartment. And um, for all intents and purposes, had been declared dead by physicians, but then later actually ended up menstruating. Yeah. Having her first period mm -hmm. on life support. Mm -hmm. And I thought the article did a beautiful job of kind of bringing up the question of what does it mean to die? Because, you know, the body is a collection of cells and, mm -hmm. you know, it could be that some of the cells are still working and some of them aren't. And some of those cells might be in the brain and some of those mm -hmm. cells might be in the heart. And um, for me, I think it would be really jarring to have someone just kind of turn on and turn off like that mm -hmm. uh, when I'm used to seeing the process happen a little bit more gradually. Yeah, I, I really like that article, too. Um, I think that I, I tend to, th like clinically, I think of death in like, very narrow terms. Like, it is like, is there a pulse or is there not? And that's probably because there's a lot of I feel a lot of pressure in medicine and probably especially in emergency medicine to make critical decisions based on limited uh, information and a way of mitigating the pressure that you feel and uh, dealing with that uncertainty is to simplify things and you end up approaching patients very algorithmically. Like, is there a pulse? Like, yes or no? And then you like proceed from there. But at least like clinically, like when I'm working, I don't have a whole lot of time to like reflect on what 
or like what that death really means, like more mm-hmm. substantively. Mm-hmm. You strike me as the type of person who is a deep thinker, and uh-huh. um, I wonder That's if generous of you, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's my sense, and I, I wonder if you ever feel a disconnect between that kind of simplified algorithmic thinking that you must. Mm-hmm use in the emergency department, pulse or no pulse, and then Mm -hmm. kind of going down the forked algorithm like that, Mm -hmm. as compared to um, sort of the more abstract thinking, the more philosophical thinking that you showed us in the story that you told at our show. Mm -hmm. I don't think that it's it's either one, really. I think that they're just like uh, different tools for different jobs. Uh, I, I write a lot. And to steal a line from Don DeLillo, uh, writing is a concentrated form of thinking. And I've always needed needed that. What kind of writing do you do to process your other patient encounters um i i think that's just like it's not really like for, like i'd probably just be doing it anyway like if i weren't a doctor i, I took a the circuitous route uh, through medical school and took a leave of absence to get a master's of fine arts in fiction and then eventually came back for the end of medical school so it was all it was like part of just like what, what i did why did you want to do that? Or what was it that you wanted to do? Uh, Not to play the role of confused parent. But. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think that I, I'm I'm a lot like my parents. My dad was a doctor. Uh, he was an emergency medicine physician, too. Oh, and wow. My mom's a visual artist. Oh. So looking back, it was probably preordained that I just <laughs> became the person that I became. Uh, I think that my interest in writing began a lot like other middle schoolers who also wrote terrible, terrible poems, but for whatever reason that impulse persisted with me and continued through college and then eventually through med school into now. I was definitely one of those middle schoolers who wrote terrible poems. Yeah. I recently was home and I digged up a poem uh, I wrote yeah. about um, Monica Lewinsky. Yes. And it was written from her point of view. Amazing. And it, it was like sympathetic to Monica Lewinsky. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, a lot of uh, kind of passionate, uh, bad poetry that came out of me uh-huh. around that That scandal. sounds like great poetry. It's funny that we're talking about bad, angsty poetry because there was a part of your story that almost implied a poetry in the job of being an emergency room physician. And it's when you talk about the practiced, scripted art of telling someone that their loved one has died. And Mm -hmm. I think the way you say it is it's a musical refrain with three beats. Mm -hmm. And it's, I'm so sorry to tell you this. Pause. Mm -hmm. Your husband has died. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I probably should have more scripts than I do. Uh-huh. Um, I think around death and dying for sure. But I, if anyone has any, please feel free to send them my way. I would love a script for how to handle situations mm-hmm. where people would like pain medicine yeah. that, you know, that maybe mm-hmm. it isn't appropriate to prescribe. Mm-hmm. I, I struggle sometimes to find the words. It's just very hard to look someone in the eyes and say no when they're telling you I'm in pain. Give me this medicine. Yeah. Um, 
which is not to say that I don't treat people's pain. I do, but you know, there are difficult situations, mm-hmm. um, especially when you're dealing with people who have substance use disorders. But it's something I've been thinking a lot about. I think, you know, just being a nice person in medicine sometimes isn't quite enough. And these interpersonal interactions, whether it's telling someone, no, you can't have another IV dilated mm-hmm. dose, or I'm so sorry, pause, mm-hmm. your husband has died, these um, uh, things that we have to say and that we repeat over and over again, I'm interested in the idea that we might be able to teach and learn scripts around these things. And I wonder if that's something that you've ever thought about as well. I, that's such a good idea. No, I haven't really thought about it. I think that I end up relying on those scripts in a similar way that I rely on like algorithmic, simplified ways of thinking. Like for, for me, it's more of a starting point, but it at least gives me like a, like a point of, like a portal of entry like into that conversation. And then based on on that person's reaction, I can, I can kind of feel out where to proceed from there. I'd like to talk a little bit about the Lazarus phenomenon, mm-hmm. which is the phenomenon that's described in this story. Can you share with the audience what is the Lazarus phenomenon so that they can better understand what happened in the room with that patient and his wife? Yeah, the, the Lazarus phenomenon, I guess the I've read that the more clinical term for it is the delayed return of spontaneous circulation is when um, uh, circulation or pulses uh, restart after resuscitative efforts have ended, typically like five or 10 minutes later. And it's a rare event, so it's not really well understood. Uh, And they had five patients, if I remember right, and none of them survived. So it never uh, at least in when it's been studied has led to um, a survival as an outcome. And so so this happened to you. You were in the yeah. room and you know, you had told Mark's wife that Mark was dead mm-hmm. and then you feel his um pulse flickering against your fingers. You see him lift his head as if reaching for the surface of a lake, you say. Uh-huh. So what was going through your mind in that moment? Terror. Yeah, just uh just blank terror. Um, was it like like Frankenstein terror, like this? It's alive kind of terror, or was it yeah. more like I'm embarrassed terror? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah the the latter. Yeah, isn't that? I think that there's something self-selecting about medicine, about people in the medical field who are highly motivated by public humiliation or failure. Um, so I think that that was like what like that is. that's a big mistake like that seems like something pretty fundamental that you should be able to do is determine whether your patient is a alive or b dead (laughs) um yeah and there's not really an algorithm for that so i i really didn't know what to do i think it's interesting how uncomfortable we get when we feel embarrassed or like we don't know um, whether it's, you know, I'm so sorry, Mrs. Jones, I prescribed you the wrong dose of the wrong medicine, you know, mm-hmm. or something like that, disclosing an error mm-hmm. or something as silly as like farting in front of a patient. Yeah. How do you feel like we are doing as a, as a medical community around um, being transparent with our patients about our mistakes? Mm-hmm. I don't know, but I suspect not well. 
I think the the sense of shame is too heightened. How do you think we're doing? Probably agree with you, but I think we're making strides. I remember when I was in medical school, we actually had a role-playing session about error disclosure, Mm -hmm. and it was just with actors. Mm -hmm. And the error that we were disclosing was that we had given the patient 1,000 times the dose of the chemotherapy Mm -hmm. because a decimal point had been moved. Mm -hmm. And I remember we had to sit in front of this actor and say the words, I'm so sorry, Mrs. Jones. I gave you 1,000 the dose of the chemotherapy or something along those Uh lines. And even though it was just a role-playing exercise, it was so emotional for me. If I was, it wasn't even real, but I just had such trouble getting the words out. Mm -hmm. Um, I found the training helpful. Later in my residency, I did accidentally prescribe a woman double the dose of Bactrim. Yeah. It was an antibiotic. I was supposed to give her one tab twice a day and I accidentally ordered two tabs twice a day and she called because she was having some side effects. She felt, Uh she described like that she had had 20 cups of coffee. Yeah. And um, when I looked back at the computer and realized what I had done, this role-playing exercise came back to me and I was able to use that exposure, that experience to then disclose to her, I'm so sorry, that was my mistake. I ordered you double the dose. But of course, I mm-hmm. hung up the phone and my face turned red and I started crying and my husband mm-hmm. had to comfort me and it was like this big thing. So a lot of what we've talked about so far is the dark, heavy side of emergency medicine, telling Mm -hmm. people that their loved one has died, um, the stress. But I'd love to hear a little bit about why you chose to go into emergency medicine and what are some things that you love about being in the emergency room? Yeah, yeah, because you're right. A lot of it is like not quite as acute. There's just some days where I'm draining abscesses and putting on splints, and that's great, too. I think that one of the things that I like about it is that I'm a relatively introverted guy, and it's an easy way to be around people, especially people that I wouldn't typically meet in my my social sphere. Uh, so I, I really like that. Um, there's a sort of cliched saying about emergency medicine that it's the most exciting 15 minutes of every specialty, where you get to draw on like obstetric knowledge and pediatric knowledge and internal medicine knowledge. Um, but uh, you don't have to do other stuff that I'm just not as interested by, like managing like blood pressure over days or weeks or longer. And I like that. I like that my dad was a doctor, an emergency medicine doctor. And it always sounds a bit uncreative saying that, like, yeah, like my dad was a doctor, so so am I. But I think that my dad, um, that, that I think a lot like my dad does, like both my parents do. And so it's kind of nice to go through what he must have been going through when he was my age and to think about like how like oh this is probably how like his his approach was to making like the decisions that I have to make or how he or how he would have handled that probably I I was raised on a steady diet of uh gruesome bedtime stories as a kid (laughs) really oh yeah yeah stuff that was fascinating to my six-year-old self 
that I'm sure had a lot to do with my early indoctrination towards medicine. Like the like the guy that was attempting some yard work but put an axe through his foot, or the the occasional heavy machinery mishap. Uh, and I learned later that my dad was kind of worried about whatever emotional damage he was permanently inflicting on his child, but those were the, the stories that I demanded at the time. Do you think you'll, um, now that you I have that, a three-week-old baby at home, do I mean, you like, think you'll again, be sharing like I, the gruesome stories? It, it, like, if, if she wants to, like, I think that I'll probably do what my dad does, if, and if she wants to hear them, then I will probably tell them to her, and what I hope are, are not psychiatrically damaging <laughs> increments, uh, and will then worry like what about like what what sort of permanent damage did I just inflict on my daughter, just like my dad did about me, and then it'll probably end up being fine. And then she'll transmit it to her children, and it'll just and the, be yeah, the, the cycle will perpetuate. The family, yeah. family, yeah, tradition. <laughs> yeah, it can be on our crest with some with some angsty poetry on the side. Oh, geez, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Joe, for coming to speak with us more about your story, and I look forward to reading more of your gruesome stories in the future. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. And if you haven't heard the first season of our show yet, I recommend you check it out. You don't want to miss those episodes. We also want to give a shout out to another podcast called EM Over Easy, an emergency medicine podcast about more than medicine. If you like this episode of The Nocturnist, head over there for more great stories about emergency medicine. And if you like what you're hearing, please visit our website or find us on Patreon and click Donate to support the work that we do. A lot of us are full-time doctors and students, so putting together The Nocturnist is a labor of love that we do in our free time, and we would really appreciate your support so we can continue to make episodes for you. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook, and don't forget to spread the word, tell your friends, tell your doctor, and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. And lastly, if you're a student or resident, don't forget to check out The Nocturnist's contest for a chance to be featured on season three of our show. Special thanks to executive producer Ali Block, podcast producer Marina Poole, program coordinator and head of story development Adelaide Papazolo, sound engineer Alberto Hernandez, assistant producer Kirk Clocky, our podcast intern Chloe Lassard, social media manager B. Logan, our illustrator Lindsay Mound, our composer Yessi Monroe, and the voice of Boaz Monroe, and our fundraising lead Cecilia Peterson. This episode's story was coached by Kirk Clocky. And last but not least, Thank you to our storyteller, Joe Sills. I'm your host and creator, Emily Silverman. We are the Nocturnists. Until next time. And we're back. So what did you think? We really hope you liked it. And if you did, we need you to do two things right now, like right now. The first thing is subscribe to The Nocturnist. We will include a link to subscribe in the show notes. And the second thing is, is let us know you subscribed. We want to know if you 
are loving our recommendations. We want to hear if you're subscribing to the shows that we're putting forward. We will include links to the ways to get in touch with us in the show notes. So those two things, go subscribe and let us know you subscribed. All right. So Adela, if the listeners love the Nocturnists, what else do you think they'd like? Can you give another recommendation? Yeah. I mean, so obviously the Nocturnist is modeled after the moth. I know the moth is very well known, but for those of you who don't know it, and surprisingly, I found this out that I I had a podcast brunch club meeting in Chicago where I was asking about if people knew the moth and like half of the people that were there, and there were probably about 14 people there did not know the moth. So I was like, oh my gosh, we have to go see the moth. We live in a podcast bubble, Adela. I know. (laughs) Also, I told a story at the moth one time. Oh my gosh. I want to find a recording of that. We're going to have to find, maybe that's going to be the next episode of Feed the (laughs) Queue. It's an embarrassing story about me, which is all of the stories about me, but I don't know if it was recorded. Are they all recorded? I think they are all recorded. I don't know if they, I mean, they don't all end up on the podcast, but right. I mean, so for those of you who don't know the moth, I mean, it's a live story of telling event. They have shows all over the world. I'm in Chicago, Lauren's in New York. I mean, but they have them all over. They have them in Sydney. They have them in Ireland and Dublin. I've heard London and like all over, all over. And then they just record the the stories and then they pick some of the ones and put them on the podcast. They do thematic sort of roundups of stories and they're all five minute stories and they're no notes, like they're not read and they're all really good. And I actually just went, I arranged for a podcast brunch club outing in Chicago to go see the moth. We went to a Grand Slam event last weekend. So it was pretty fun. I have a question because when I go to the moth in New York, Mm -hmm. you have to get there like an hour early. That used to be the way it was. I don't know what they're doing in New York, but here in Chicago, a while ago, they changed it so that you buy tickets in advance. You, oh, and, yeah. You can do that now. I guess, sorry, I'm thinking of the olden days, but like, I remember that's those how days. popular it was. The, the mm-hmm. lines would be wrapped around the block. Yeah. And it was like so great, but also like awful because you would inevitably like end up at the end of the line and then there was no more seating. So you would have to like stand for an entire evening and or, you know, like you're eating. I remember having like having to have somebody else hold my plate while I ate my dinner and then I held their plate while they ate their dinner. But um, but they've done it. They've changed it. Those people in the front seats, like yeah. s- very smug, like, yeah. I yeah. Guess. And they had to get I've there at like three PM. in the afternoon for a seven yeah. o'clock show. <laughs> I'm, like, I I'm not doing that. But no, they've changed it. Now, they have like three a month, I think, in Chicago and all different parts of the city. I'm sure they have like five, six a month in, in New York City. Anyway, it's a great thing to do live. But if you can't go live, the Moth podcast is a great way to hear some of the best stories. We spent way too much time talking about something that's not a podcast. Well, it is a so, podcast, but... I'm joking. Yeah. But now I want to hear your podcast recommendation. Right. That's what I was going to say. This is not my podcast recommendation. My podcast recommendation is another somewhat well-known show called Snap Judgment. But again, I'm always like, I think some of these shows fly under the radar. We're like, we really are in a a little bubble. So I want to pop that bubble a little and let people know that Snap Judgment is another storytelling show. It's tagline used to be storytelling with a beat and it was, it, they're highly produced stories. They're not like, it's not a live storytelling show in the same way that the Nocturnists or the Moth is, but they're well done. They're personal stories and they're produced and there's a musical element. And Glenn Washington, the host is fascinating. He's wonderful. He's like a poet, kind of like a spoken word pro. And he also has a really interesting backstory 
which could segue into another podcast recommendation that has nothing whatsoever to do with storytelling, but he grew up in a cult and he did a whole podcast about that experience called Heaven's Gate. So that's another recommendation that's not storytelling, but linked to a storytelling podcast called Snap Judgment. So that's my, that's my recommendation or recommendations. That was good. And Glenn has the best voice also, I must say. The best voice. So how about you? I think I would recommend if you like this kind of stuff, there's a podcast called Mortified where people, adults, read from their teen journals and it's always funny. It always is so cringy and it will remind you of all the embarrassing things that you did. It will remind you of having writing in your aim conversations and the time that you've tripped in front of your crush. It's like all of the most cringeworthy things that happens to teenagers. My favorite thing is wondering, like, did this teenager know, like, did they have awareness that people would be reading this stuff? Because sometimes you think they do. And like, anyway, it was so funny. And then there's another one. If you have kids or I, I don't have kids and I love this show, it's called, Ooh, You're in Trouble. And it's storytelling where kids talk about times that they got into trouble. It's also really great. That sounds fun. And the thing I'll say about Mortified is like the best title. I mean, it's just so it's obviously like everybody who is on stage has chosen to be on stage, but it's mortifying to read what you wrote at like 13 when you're 30 years old to a crowd of strangers. And that's basically what they're doing on stage. And it's so funny. I always wonder, though, like, what would it feel like to it's easy to laugh at yourself, right? And mm-hmm. it's easy to laugh at other people's stories, but I don't know how that would feel to be on stage and have people laughing at you. You know, like it's almost, that, is it one of those things where it's like I'm allowed to laugh at this, but you all maybe. need to be a little more competitive. I don't know what that feels like. That would yeah, be I wouldn't do it. It's strange. not my cup of tea. I, I'll go watch somebody do it, but I, I don't think I choose to do it. But I think like for the most part, they're up there making fun of themselves, and they're like, yeah. you know, they're they're hamming it up. You know, like they're yeah. they're they totally are. Yeah, so they're like speaking in the teenage voice, and the you know they're they're making everything the ridiculous parts. Yeah, yeah, totally. Right. So it's fun. It's a fun show. Yeah. Very lighthearted. Let us know what you think about those. Yeah, for sure. And offer us more suggestions. We don't know everything. No, and yeah, that's, I mean, we love to hear from the fans of podcasts. The people who are listening to the podcast are the best people to recommend podcasts. So you guys are listeners. So tell us what you're listening to. And if you're loving a show that you want us to know about, you can email us at feedtheq at gmail.com. That's F-E-E-D-T-H-E-Q-U-E-U-E at gmail.com. Or you can reach out on social. All the links are in the show notes. Thanks and happy listening. See you next week.